Hello, welcome to Benches, Strings, and Drinking Boards, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today we are going to talk about really a very depressing subject, the Middle Passage, and we have Mark. And we will start, Mark, with the first thing. What is the Middle Passage? All right, so the Middle Passage refers to two different aspects. For the... For all shipping of the 1500s all the way through to the 1800s, it is the passage that most sailing ships are going to be using to get across the Atlantic Ocean. Wind currents and water currents come down from Europe towards the west coast of Africa and then swing across just a little bit above the equator, swinging down and through the tropics, coming on up through the Caribbean. And then when it hits the Caribbean, it shatters into a dozen different wind currents that all kind of reform off the coast of Florida, come up the Atlantic coast, and then somewhere around Virginia to New York, the wind currents and water currents swing back towards Europe, creating a circle through the Atlantic Ocean. For the transatlantic slave trade, this is also going to be the wind currents that will be used for those ships as well. So since it is Black History Month and we are focusing on the trials and tribulations of people who were forcibly taken from Africa and brought to uh, various points in the globe, where were the majority of enslaved persons taken from? So the majority of, of people that were captured and enslaved during the 16th, 17th, 18th century are primarily coming out of sub-Saharan Africa, principally West Africa going down the coast uh, from, say, where modern-day Nigeria is, all the way down through to Congo and Angola. The way that tended to work is that there are a couple of different uh, slave trades that are in operation there. There's first an indigenous slave trade that is being used. That's really more of a social class that existed in West African society. The second would have been the transatlantic slave trade, which would have been primarily um, going across the Atlantic Ocean into the New World. And the third was the Islamic slave trade, which was taking folks from all of sub-Saharan Africa and bringing it into North Africa and from there into the wider Islamic world. It's extremely very interesting. And one of the reasons when you look at a map is how far West Africa actually sticks out into the Atlantic. So that part kind of makes sense. How long did the transatlantic slave trade last? So the transatlantic slave trade generally lasts from, say, about 1530 to about the 1830s, 1840s. Beginning is a little easier to talk about than the end. Uh, the beginning of the trade really is a result of the Spanish Empire's conquests into the New World. And with the gold and silver mines that are taking part in places like Mexico and Peru, and then later on with sugar and tobacco plantations throughout the New World, you're going to have the beginnings of the transatlantic slave trade. Starting around the early 1800s, you start having countries like England pulling out of the transatlantic slave trade, and by 1811, they're going to pass what's called uh, the Slave Trade Felony Act. And that's going to be the beginnings of Great Britain trying to stop any ships coming out of West Africa for the transatlantic slave trade into the New World. 
going from that onward, any ships, especially ships that are traveling through what would have been the British Empire at the time, which covers almost everything at one point or another, they are going to try to stop ships of other nations. That is going to slow down some of this transatlantic slave trade, but you're going to still have countries like the Dutch, and then later on more so Portugal and the Spanish, continuing the slave trades into the 1730s and 40s. Um, it's really going to be the independence movements of many of the South and Central American countries that are going to end the transatlantic slave trade for, the, say, the Spanish Empire specifically. Along with this, is there any sort of record or some sort of estimate on how many total Africans were forcibly transported during these periods? So the numbers are always going to be a little bit in flux. Uh, we are generally thinking that we're talking about 12 million or so enslaved Africans that were being brought across the Atlantic Ocean from, say, about 1530 to about 1830. Generally speaking, there is a trend, but there is no year-to-year dates. Generally speaking, we're looking at uh, lower numbers in the 1500s, with it continuing to ramp up into about the 1820s. And then you'll start seeing the numbers uh, decline as really the only two parties still involved in the slave trade in a meaningful way would have been the Spanish and the Portuguese at that point. But during much of the 18th century, England would have been one of the larger uh, powers doing the transportation of enslaved Africans, followed by the Dutch and the Portuguese. The who's involved changes a little bit over time, but I think we've mentioned all the major players in this. So what was the century where the majority of enslaved people were coming over? Was it the 18th century? It is the 18th century and 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 the first two decades of the 19th century. So the primary time period where we're having uh, folks being captured and enslaved is going to be from around 1740, 1750 till about 1830. We've mentioned that there was a strong economic drive towards the exploitation of Africans. What kind of organizations were involved in this? So there are a couple of different organizations that are going to be involved in this. Let's start with the organization that's that's primarily responsible for the transportation of most of these enslaved Africans, and that's going to be what's called joint stock companies. So in the English's case, it is going to be two different companies. It's the Royal African Company, which is going to be in operation from about 1660 to about 1750. And then it's going to be the African Company of Merchants, which is operating from about 1752 and is finally dissolved in 1821. Those are the two primary English institutions. Now, I have to explain what's a joint stock company. Joint stock companies are basically in the same idea that we have companies that sell stock today. People would invest in them, have a stock, and they would have it traded on the stock market. This was how the investors would earn their money. And as these companies made money, the stock's value would go up. They would divide in divid- with dividends and then would proceed to sell more stocks to generate more revenue. So that's the basics for joint stock companies. Uh, the Royal African Company had a number of stockholders, but the royal family uh, of the Duke of York, that principally um, in charge of the company, when it was first founded in 1660, which will eventually become James II, uh, Stuart. Doing some reading on on this topic, one of the things that I think was very 
gripping and very just sad is that the ships that were transported really are ships of torture. And one of the things that they always describe is as soon as they left Africa, there were tons of sharks or many sharks that are following them because of how terrible and how much death was on these ships. Can you describe the types of ships and the refitting of ships that are used in transporting enslaved Africans? All right. So when we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade in 15 and the 1600s, you're generally looking at standard merchant ships. Now, ships in the period operate a little differently. So in the 1500s, we're really looking at ships like the Caravel, which was a class of ship coming out of Spain and Portugal, very common. And then eventually you're going to see galleons being used. These merchant ships are going to be the same style of vessels, generally multi-purpose ships being slightly altered to be able to transport slaves. By the time you get to the 17 and the 1800s, you're starting to see more and more purpose-built ships. The idea that a merchant ship also had to serve as a reserve warship, which also had to reserve as a troop transport, that idea had kind of gone away. And all the ships were now more specialized and continued to be more and more specialized in a very specific role. For the ships that were doing the transatlantic slave trade, sometimes referred to as guineamen, you're generally looking at bulk freighting merchant ships with multiple decks inside. And as you would get into the lower levels of the ship, you would be looking at the spaces where the enslaved Africans would have been kept. There are two different ways that these ships tended to operate. One of them is referred to as close packing, and one of them is referred to as tight packing. Both of them are horrible. But basically, you would have folks coming down into the interior of the ship. You would be having the first rows of folks being pushed up against the hull of the vessel, and then they would have been chained to the ship. And then you would have had preceding ranks of folks being brought in, ever enclosing in towards the center of the deck, at which point you would then close the cargo hatch to that deck and then go to the deck above. You would have slaves, sometimes referred to being stacked like cords of wood, one right next to each other with a small piece of wood above and then stacked several high. And that would be the conditions for slavery uh, for the folks. As time went on, those conditions continued to get worse and worse and worse. And so by the time you look at the very end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century, that's the period when we tend to think about and talk about where you had numbers of folks dying on these trips across. You would have lack of food, insufficient water. And one of the things that many of the slave ships did was that they would bring numbers of slaves up onto the decks at a time, force them to run around and jump and get exercise. And some of the enslaved Africans, if they were able to get free, would rather have thrown themselves off of the ships than remain captive on board. So that's a lot of what's going on for these slave ships going across the Atlantic Ocean. And, and to prevent what you just described, didn't a lot of these ships have netting all around the ships to prevent people from jumping overboard? Many of them did have netting around them, and oftentimes they were still chained to other people on board the ship. And didn't I think they call it the foredeck, or the isn't that 
reinforced and barricaded and just in case there was a slave rebellion. Correct. So the foredeck is also sometimes referred to, especially in the older generations of ships, as the forecastle. So the forecastle and the aft castle, and the galleon designs and the caravel designs, were actually raised military platforms on the ships so that they could repel borders uh, with boarding pikes and spears, as well as having smaller artillery called swivel guns that they could use to rake the deck the middle of the ship. That feature tends to go away in many of the more civilian style of ships during the 17 and 1800s, but the slaving ships do have a tendency to retain those features uh, for the defenses of the ships and to put down any ships that the enslaved Africans would try to rebel and take the ship. There are examples of ships actually successfully capturing themselves and freeing themselves on board ship. Uh, probably the one that most folks would have been most familiar with would have been the case of the Amistad. Is there any sort of data on how many Africans are thought to have died on the passage? The numbers, like everything, especially in the early years, is kind of shaky. Um, we are probably looking at anywhere at the lowest estimate. We're looking several hundred thousand folks having died across the transatlantic slave trade, um, going all the way up to about two plus million folks having died during the transatlantic slave trade. There is a an example, and I think it took place in the 18th century, of an enslaved ship being um, becalmed by winds. So they were in, they weren't moving; they were running out of food. Right. And then the ship's captain took the order to kill most of the enslaved people, throw them overboard, and then claimed an insurance policy. Yes. So let me address the first part of that: what becalming meant. So when I was mentioning the wind currents that were going around the Atlantic Ocean, if you were ever knocked out of those wind currents, you could get stuck in the Atlantic Ocean for weeks or months without another breeze showing up. So a ship that, say, was running low on supplies and got becalmed, it was liable that everyone could starve to death on the ship. So that is the first part of that, is, of that situation. Yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. There were a couple of instances uh, in the historic record where becalmed ships or ships that had, for due to storms, had had their rigging, their sails and their ropes damaged and destroyed, and they did not have enough spares to get moving, did in fact uh, murder the enslaved Africans on their ships to to try to preserve their food stores and, and water stores before they could either repair the ship or a wind would have come up to get the ship moving again. Before we get to the Middle Passage, there are many other horrors that awaited these enslaved, kidnapped Africans. Can you describe the terrible events in sequence that resulted in enslaved lives? All right. So there are generally speaking two different ways that this would start. It's either going to be as a result of a war that's taking place or as a result of small-scale raiding. That's the two different contexts that these different types of attacks are taking place in. 
regardless of what is happening, which generally the start is a person is free in Africa and they are going to be attacked using violence, whether that's from the war or from a raiding party, at which point they are going to be detained and then they're going to be basically confined. They're going to be having chains put onto their hands to prevent them from being able to move them freely, sometimes behind the back, oftentimes chained up or locked up next to another person. For men, oftentimes there would also be a yoke of some sort put upon the necks of the gentlemen as they would be traveling in a group, and there would be shackles placed onto the legs to prevent them from being able to run or move very quickly. From that attack, which is going to be bringing these folks from the interior, those captured Africans are going to be brought to whichever prince or king that they had been uh, associated with, and they would be brought down to the coast, at which point they would then be turned over and sold to a European power. In the case of England, they would have been sold and probably brought to a place like Cape Castle. At which point they're going to be held in essentially a dungeon uh, until a company ship would have arrived. The company ship would have um, re-bought fresh food and supplies, sold any of the cargo that they had on board to make room on their ship, and then the enslaved Africans would have been brought to a holding facility near the coast. At that point, you would have had the these folks basically brought onto the ship lowered down, and then put into the confined spaces on board ship, as I described earlier, either in a pile, uh, loose packing or in uh, tight packing. Once they're on board the ship, you're going to be, for days on end, confined into a fairly dark, cramped space. You're going to have people basically right on top of you, either above and next to you. Um, there's going to be no real move. You're not going to be able to roll over. And you're going to be brought across the Atlantic Ocean. That's about a two to three month voyage for most of these ships. Sometimes a month and a half. Once you're brought to the New World, you are then going to be taken off of the ship. At this point, two different things are going to happen to you. One, you're going to be brought into a holding facility, very similar to what you had started with in Cape Castle. You would have been fed to some extent, and then you would have been forced to exercise or you would have been brought directly to a slave auction. If you were brought directly to the slave auction, you would have been sold as a lot. Basically, all the enslaved Africans at that point would have been sold in one lump sum, and that from that point they would have been transported to whatever plantation or mine they were going to probably spend the rest of their lives on. For some of these, that's going to be couple of years, some of these folks, it's going to be a lifetime. Regardless of what it is, it's going to be generally pretty backbreaking work with a number of hazards, whether it's going to be injuries from working in the sugar canes or mines collapsing in methane in the gold and silver mines. If you had been brought to one of the holding facilities first and exercised and given food, you would probably would have been sold as an individual slave. Generally speaking, they were sold at a higher price as individuals. At that point, the circumstances are going to be mostly the same. 
you're going to be purchased by whoever is is interested in purchasing slaves. Again, either going to a plantation or to a mine facility. Some of these enslaved Africans will also be brought in as household staff. The person would then be brought forth uh, to whatever and wherever they were going, and again would continue to at that point for most of these folks work the rest of their lives wherever they've been brought. What ended the Middle Passage, and what were the repercussions? All right, so what ended the Middle Passage is going to be a, uh, really it's going to be two steps. Uh, the thing that really ends the Middle Passage for most people is going to be the British Empire. The uh, British Empire, at the end of the American Revolution, lost many of its slave-owning territories, with the exception of places like Jamaica and Barbados. The English had always had an odd relationship with the transatlantic slave trade, being one of the first countries to have abolished slavery back in the 14 and 1500s, and then reinstituting it in the 1600s when slavery was introduced in Virginia in the 1660s. So the British at that point continue on with the institution, taking part in it, until we get to about the time of the Napoleonic Wars. There is also, at this point, a growing abolitionist movement in England and a just a kind of trend in the society to end the institution of slavery. So the first part of it is going to be in 1807. And 1807 the English are going to pass a couple of laws which are going to ban the transportation of slaves within the British Empire. That does not end slavery in the British slaveholding territories. That just means that Jamaica and Barbados and a few of their other New World possessions will no longer be able to import slaves themselves. The second part of that, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be the 1811 Slave Trade Felony Act. This makes it a crime for any nation ship to transport slaves through the British Empire. And when you have a pretty strong grip on the Caribbean, you have a pretty significant hold on parts of northern South America, and you have the largest navy in the world by a fairly large factor, especially after the Battle of Trafalgar and the victory of the British against um, the French and Spanish navies. So, despite all that, it really is not going to be until about 1815 with the end of the Napoleonic Wars that the British are going to be able to start putting significant pressure on their trading partners and neighbors to end the slave trade. The English were at that point boarding other nations' ships. If they found slaves on board, they would bring them back to West Africa and unload the cargo and free all the enslaved Africans. It is somewhat inconsistent how often the English were doing this, but it was, as the decades passed, more and more consistent in ever-increasing amount. By that time, however, we do have an enslaved population of Africans, both in the New World, uh, North and South America, that was pretty much self-sustaining. So the need for some of these slave-owning colonies to continuously bring new uh, enslaved Africans in had diminished. The 
last thing that is going to well, there's two last parts that are part of this story. Uh, the set, second one is going to be the revolt in Haiti. Now, Haiti really deserves its own entire uh, talk. It's a very complicated situation, but during the French Revolution, Haiti was a French colony. It rebelled in 1791. It continued the revolution until about 1804 when it finally gained its independence. It is the first enslaved African uh, colony that is able to successfully rebel and gain their independence. So that is going to be an emphasis for ending the transatlantic slave trade and slavery in general for most of uh, the English-speaking world, especially being the uh, British colonies. The end of it will be for the British abolishing slavery in 1833. They will abolish slavery in the British Empire. That will increase their uh, desire to prevent the transportation of slaves out of West Africa into, by that point, we're principally looking at the Portuguese colony of Brazil and the Spanish colonies of Cuba. All right. Well, well, thank you, Mark, on a very um, – words escape me at this moment, but a really horrific part of our history. Um, one of the things that – if looking at this, if you want to find someone who is actually a good person, um, his name is Thomas Clarkson. He was a divinity student at Cambridge and was forced to debate um, the slave trade when he was a young college student – in Latin, um, he took the side that it was immoral. And supposedly when he was going home from that debate, which he thought he did pretty well, but he wasn't convinced in the subject, there was a terrible thunderstorm. And he thought it was a divine inspiration from God that he, had, he was being called upon to end the slave trade. And he spent the rest of his life working towards that goal. A lot of the facts and figures that we have gotten from here come from Thomas Clarkson and the abolition movement in England from the 1780s and 1790s. He is someone, if this is such a depressing subject, no one comes out looking good. He is the one person who does come out looking good. And if you're interested in abolition, be sure to tune into our upcoming Juneteenth episode where we will focus on the abolition movement within the United States and just how impactful that actually was. Thank you for tuning in to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We bring you historical episodes twice a month. And be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to be constantly updated, be sure to check out our RSS feed, which will update you every time an episode is dropped. See you next time. Thank you.